The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather together, to be able to study your word, to worship together, to have fellowship. It's just a gift um, that we too often take for granted. It's a freedom we experience that not all of the world does. And so God, we just pause right now and just give you great thanks for how you've been so good to us. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we open this word that you would just teach and instruct us Lord, we know that by your spirit, day after day, you are building your church. And I don't just mean by numbers, but you're molding us, you're shaping us into your perfect image. So God, as we study this text, may you chisel off the rough edges. May you smooth down the rough spots. And and Lord, may you show us how we can be more and more like you as we understand you better and better. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our King, our Redeemer, our Rock. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So I've been talking a little bit lately about the potential, or, I, or you know, as we've been going through some of these, these stories about Jesus going into Jerusalem and all, several times it's come up, uh-oh, the cable's out, look at that. Um, it, it's come up several times, like this idea of like, hey, we, when you go to Israel, or if you ever get to come to Israel with us, you'll see different things and all this kind of stuff. And I, there's actually a bunch of you have been talking like, hey, when are we going to Israel? When are we going to Israel? So we need to maybe figure that out and see if maybe we can pull that off next year or something like that. I would love another shot at leading a group through there. It's a powerful, powerful time. Um, But I got to warn you a little bit. As great as going to Israel is and getting to see the places where all of these things took place, there's actually a part of going to Israel that is a massive disappointment when you get there, tends to be. Um, Because Israel is very commercial, very commercial. And, and all the different sites, well, I shouldn't say that, not all the sites. Some of the sites are preserved exactly the way they were. They haven't been messed with or any of that kind of stuff. But some of the sites that you go to, um, people, and myself included, and people in our tour were actually really, really disappointed when they got there and when they saw how some of the stuff kind of lays out. It's either been taken over by different 
churches throughout history and they run it now and everything's just gaudy and tacky and weird um, or it'll be a really commercial site where they're making money on the people coming in um, and obviously one of Israel's biggest uh, incomes is its tourism industry so I do understand what they're doing but it just sometimes goes to degrees that's a little bit disappointing and I think a lot of us go over there and we have this expectation that we're just going to be like walking around like in constant meditation like ah, everywhere we go and it's not like that at all especially in Jerusalem in many many places that leads to a lot of disappointment I'll give you an example one of the supposed birthplaces of Jesus Christ. Um, there is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, and it's a really popular spot to go and a really crowded spot. So think in your mind what it looked like maybe where Jesus was born. Like we just did our Advent series. Like picture this manger, this rustic stuff, like all of this. Where was Jesus born? Now let me show you a picture. This is what this place, if it's the right one, looks like now. That's the church of the nativity. And you go, you end up going sort of behind that wall, if I remember correctly, and there's a spot on the ground with a giant star painted on it. And people will go back there one at a time and they bow down on the ground and they'll literally kiss that star that's there on the ground. And you are in that room with hundreds and hundreds of people like this, shoulder to shoulder, waiting on your chance to go in. I just talked you out of an Israel tour, didn't I? It's true. It's true. Don't know if that's the exact place or not, but that is. It's become very like, oh, people are coming here. It's all dressed. It's like there's religious icons and stuff because of some of the older Orthodox churches. It's just, it's just kind of gaudy, and, and it pushes against. It's, it becomes somewhat difficult to go in there in this sort of somber, worshipful mindset that you might want to go in there in if you're thinking you're visiting where Jesus was born. You walk into chaos instead of what you actually thought you might see. Um, I'll show you another one. Um, the place that is expect or is uh, one of the two sites that people believe where Jesus was crucified and then right down from it buried is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and that's just one area of it. So this is taken from allegedly where Jesus was crucified and then you go down and sort of around the corner to the right and that's allegedly the sepulchre where he was buried. And that was really difficult to be at. Now, I personally, you know, for whatever this is worth, um, I personally don't think that's where Jesus was crucified or buried. I think it's the garden tomb and a place called Golgotha, or uh, that's referred to as Golgotha, or the place of the skull that's outside the walls of Jerusalem. This is inside the walls. I think that even causes a little bit of a theological problem if it's inside. But anyway, that doesn't matter. What do I know? But, um, but we went in here, and, and you're, you're thinking that you're going to the very place where Jesus was crucified. And and then you come into like, it's, it's really weird in there. There's a, a stone down at the bottom, like right down. You can barely tell it, but if you look at the very bottom of the screen, there's a woman in green bending down. There's a stone there and women will come in with these scarves and they rub these scarves on the stone where apparently, allegedly, the body of Jesus was laid as it was prepared for burial. And they'll rub these scarves on it. And people are, some people are weeping and other people are arguing because they're bumping into each other and trying to walk through all this stuff. And it's this weird mix of just every aspect of humanity you could imagine right at the cross, which is, is fitting if that was the place, right? That there would be anger and frustration and disappointment and tears and all kinds of stuff going on there. It's really kind of weird. But, but here's what actually happened, though. You go in there, and you're expecting this, like, moving, 
worshipful experience, which not to ruin your potential Israel trip, that does exist at the garden tomb and it's phenomenal there. But you go in there and you're like, man, this is gonna be this moving, powerful thing. And your expectations get sort of wrecked. In fact, some of the people that were in our tour when we went in 2014 struggled with what was going on in there. And there was literally weeping on our team. Not because people were like, I'm so moved that I'm there, but they were watching the stuff that's happening and all under the name of let's see where Jesus died and was buried. And it just felt so wrong. It was just weird and wrong. And there was even division there. Let me show you a little historical side note. Can you show the picture outside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, please? So this is taken outside. So this is like the line to go in. You go in that place there at the bottom on the left, right? So this is what the church looks like on the outside of that place. And this is crazy. Anybody notice something up on the, around the second floor? It seems like somebody forgot something. There's a ladder up there. You see that ladder there on the right? That ladder is now referred to as the immovable ladder. That ladder has sat there for over three centuries. You want to know why? Because in Israel, when all these different religious groups, like the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, when all these different churches were claiming rights to a lot of these specific holy sites, and and they all had their different ideas on how this stuff was supposed to go and how things were supposed to be preserved. They came up with this solution. I think it's called the status quo, actually, if I'm not mistaken, but something like that. And the idea was this. Okay, we'll have representatives from each of the different bodies be a part of some of these different sites, and nothing happens here unless everyone agrees. Nothing. And there's like six different historic churches that are part of this. Now, have different historical churches or even modern churches tended to get along a lot? Let me answer that for you. Answer's no. Answer's no. And so this ladder got left out there at least over 300 years ago. And those six bodies cannot agree on whose ladder it is and whose responsibility it is to pick up the ladder and move it. And because the rules state everyone has to agree, that ladder has sat there for 300 years. Because six different groups within the church could not agree on how best to use that space. And so it is now referred to as the immovable ladder. And I think in the last 300 years, it's only been moved twice. Both times illegally, both times put back to the place where it was supposed to go. How ridiculous. I mean, that would be like churches getting upset over things like carpet color, right? (laughs) Or song selection, or who got served first at the, the potluck, or, yeah, we're sort of a mess historically, aren't we? We really are. We're going to see, this, this has been going on for much, much longer than just 300 years. In our text here today, that's actually the case. Commercialism, consumerism, uh, what I want out of things as opposed to what God intended out of things, all of that stuff is taking place right here in this specific story. And and it's really interesting here. There's a background to this story. Let's not forget what's going on. Last week, we looked at the triumphant entry where Jesus Christ makes his way into Jerusalem. And he's headed there for a specific festival, a specific feast or holiday that's being taken place there. This religious observance, it is the feast of what? Wow, no one learned anything last week. Let's try it one more time. It is the feast of? Passover. It is the feast of Passover that's taking place there. Um, 
Passover, just to remind you, or for those that don't know, is the Jewish feast that celebrates Israel's deliverance from slavery to Egypt. And in that particular thing, remember the story, God executed judgment on Egypt, who was holding his people captive. He executed judgment on Egypt, and he spared his own people. And the way that God knew, the way that God separated out those who were his and those who were not, is that a a spotless lamb was sacrificed. An animal was actually sacrificed. Its blood was spilled, and the blood was applied to the doorposts of that house. And so as God came through, as his his angel came through the land of Egypt to execute judgment on the sinful um, oppression of Egypt, when it saw blood on the doorpost, it knew. That was the marker. These are mine. And that angel would pass over that house and go to the next place. And so Israel has celebrated Passover forever, ever since. It was a prescribed, even biblical um, uh, observance that would take place all the time. It's a major, major feast that took place. And Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the observance of Passover. It's one of the three feasts that every Jewish man was required to come to Jerusalem to actually celebrate. So the population in, in Jerusalem is massive. And remember last week we talked about coming down the Mount of Olives through the, the uh, he, uh, Kidron Valley. Thank you. That, somebody paid attention. Nice. And then back up the hill, up the Temple Mount into the city of Jerusalem where the temple is. The temple which is at the same place where Abraham almost sacrificed his own son Isaac where God stopped him, where he said, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. The same place. It's a huge issue. And we talked last week. If you missed it, please go back and check this out because all of human history is culminating together in this one spot. Like there are, there are things that have happened centuries before, thousands of years before, that is all coming together in this exact moment here. And so Jerusalem is And on Jerusalem, everyone would come into these various courts at the temple. And as they come into these different temples, they would provide an animal to the temple in whatever court they're in or whatever for their sacrifice for their own sins. It, It showed that everyone had understanding of their own sin, their own need for forgiveness, their own need for cleansing, as well as the reality that they all need a substitute. That the wages of sin is death, and so this animal's dying on their behalf, but that they need a substitute to pay that price for their behalf. And so it's this huge, huge holiday. And, and the population here, like, you got to think like Disneyland right before Christmas. Like, it's packed in this place. The, the population of Jerusalem, and historians argue over all this, but it may as much as triple during this festival, during this feast. So people are everywhere and people are teeming into the city. They're just pouring into the city to come there and and worship. Now, most of the people traveling in traveled on foot, just like Jesus. And most of the people that traveled in traveled from very rural areas, just like Jesus. And most of the people that are coming because they live in such rural, rural areas are very, very poor, just like Jesus. So these people are all pouring into the city, and and here's how it would work. They would come in, and starting at the base of the mountain, there would be these wash basins where they would go through these cleansing rituals, just showing their understanding of a need to be cleansed. 
And then they would put these white robes on. And they would wear these white robes as they're making their way up the mountain. It was just showing the fact that God is the one who forgives and purifies and makes us white. And, and as they're walking up the hill, up into the city, up to the temple mount where the sacrifices would be given, they would sing these Hebrew songs, or excuse me, psalms of ascent. Okay, so like here's an example if we can put this up. Psalm 121 would be one of the psalms that the Hebrew people would sing as they're making their way up, okay? And it says this, I lift my eyes up to the hills, for where does my help come from? So now imagine, think about it, they're walking up the hill, they're thinking about their need for forgiveness, their need for salvation, and so these these psalms make a lot of sense when you're thinking about what they're actually doing in that moment, okay? I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. So they're in their robes, they're making their way up and they're singing, I lift my eyes up to the hill. They're singing this psalm to the Lord. And then when they would come into the temple area, that's where they would make their sacrifice. And this represented um, not only the understanding of the gravity of their sin, because this animal's dying, don't forget. And so it's this idea of like the wages of sin is death. Like this is where we are headed when we are apart from the Lord. And so there's this animal that's being killed. It's, it's a reminder of the gravity, the importance of their sin, the penalty of their sin, but also again, the desperate need for a substitute because this lamb is dying in their place. This lamb's blood is being spilled instead of theirs. And they're seeing this example of the need for someone to pay the price and the penalty for our own sin as well. And guys, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is in control of all these things that are happening. I mean, historically, a lot of people have said, oh, Jesus was just a good teacher and things just got out of hand and he got killed, but that was never his plan. No, 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 no. He is orchestrating all of this. It is not an accident. That Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist called at the very beginning, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, is coming to the temple at Passover and will be crucified and die, his blood spilt for the sins of the rest of the world on Passover. This is, like I said last week, this is all of human history coming together for the moment that the world has desperately been waiting for and oh so desperately needs. This is a huge moment that's taking place right there. So if you're a traveler coming from a rural area a long, long ways away and you're traveling by foot and you're going here because you're planning to make a sacrifice, well, it's not like it is today, right? It's not like mini SUVs and minivans where we have luggage space and all that kind of stuff and we can just travel by car. You're certainly not coming into Jerusalem the way we did when we were there, coming in in an air-conditioned tour bus with Wi-Fi, singing our own songs of ascent as we drive into the city of Jerusalem. Oh, weary and brave travelers we are, right? It's nothing like that. So so you're going to bring your lamb with you? You're going to bring your animal along if you have one? I mean, if you're poor, you might not even have one, right? And so now you've got to travel from who knows where, from how far away, and you've got to bring this animal along with you? I would imagine that is not convenient. 
I would also imagine, since the animal you're bringing is going to be inspected, and it's supposed to be like spotless, it's supposed to be an acceptable sacrifice, I would imagine it's also really difficult making your way. You're like terrified the whole walk that it's going to like stub its toe or scratch its leg or, you know, something like that. And you're just like, that is not going to be an easy thing to do. And you can't carry it the whole way, can you? So what do you do? Well, the Jewish people have your back. There are conveniences that are created, just like we experience from time to time, right? It's nice to have, conveniences are, I mean, the definition is they're convenient. They are helpful. Oh, it's really nice to have such a convenience nearby, right? That's a great thing to have. So the Jewish people created a market. I should say the Pharisees and religious leaders of that time, the people running the temple created a market. And what they would do at this market is, don't worry, weary traveler. You don't need to come with your lamb. You don't need to come with your animal. We got your back. We'll just have some available for you. You don't have to travel with that. And then when you get here and it comes time and you go through all the stuff, you come up here, buy your animal right here. You don't have to travel with it. You don't have to carry food for it. You don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. We'll just take care of you. Buy your animal and cruise right in. That sounds like a, that actually sounds like a great idea, right? Like many things begin, and I, I'm willing to believe completely that this whole thing began with good intentions, Like, man, let's just serve the people. Let's make this easy. Some people are coming and they don't have a lamb or so-and-so Bill brought his lamb, but it fell in the mud on the way back and we're not taking that sacrifice. So he's in trouble and, you know, all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no problem. We got you covered. I I believe that 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 was actually born out of a good heart and it was convenient. Um, But over time, as many things can happen, it got corrupt. It got really corrupt. So all of these people coming all this way are coming into the market, and now there's this market system that exists that instead of being convenient and helpful, it's taking advantage of people and ripping people off, and it's so, so terrible. And this is just a common thing. This is not just about the, the priests and the temple, because let's, uh, let's use an example. Super Bowl's coming up, right? Super Bowl's coming up. Hotel prices. Have you ever looked into hotel prices during the Super Bowl? It's nice and cheap. Like, that is definitely the time that you want to go visit your grandma in Atlanta, Super Bowl weekend. It'll be very affordable for you to go there. I'll give you an example. Right now, Super Bowl is going to be in Atlanta in two weeks, and um, the Motel 6, that is the closest to the football stadium where the game is being played. Motel 6, we'll leave the light on for you. That place, Motel 6, that night, or that weekend, um, almost $1,000 a night for a Motel 6 room. You know what that room is right now? About 60 bucks. From 60 bucks to $1,000 a night. Why? Because we, we see an opportunity here. We can make money here. And Super Bowl tickets are expensive. Don't even get me going on that. There's even fluctuations in what some of these prices of tickets are expected to go up to based on what happens in the game today. And some of them range two and $3,000. The most expensive being, in case you're curious, if the New England Patriots win and the New Orleans Saints win, Drew Brees will play, some of you don't even care already, Drew Brees will play Tom Brady, um, who is the enemy, and those two will play each other for the first time in their careers, will play each other. And those tickets go way up price-wise compared to everything else that happens. It's gouging. It's the same exact thing that happens in here in this particular store. It's the exact same thing. Last year at the Super Bowl, a hot dog was $15. And a side of fries to go with it was another $13. That's no Costco, right? What's a Costco hot dog? Buck fifty? Comes with a soda? 
Somebody once made a comment to me that we are the Costco church. I'm pretty sure he was trying to offend us at the time. And I'm like, buck 50 for a hot dog and cheap clothes? I'm in. Let's do this. <laughs> Heritage brought to you by Costco. Yeah, we're, and, and it doesn't have to be just special events. Like, we're all familiar with this. Like, this might be one of the most common crimes in all of United States humanity. And it's sneaking candy into the movies. <laughs> right? And we justify it. They're gouging in there and that's wrong. So we're going to do this and two wrongs make a right. That's why we buy it at right aid, right next door, (laughs) right? We go right to right. Have you ever gone on like a Friday night or a Saturday? Of course you have. Every one of you have done this. Gone to right aid behind Tinseltown to go buy your candy. And there's a ton of people shopping in the candy section on a Saturday night for some reason at right aid, right? You ever notice the candy's right there in the middle when you walk into the store? They know what you're there for. And so they sneak that in. So you buy gummy bears for a buck at Rite Aid instead of six bucks in the movie, right? So this is common. This happens all the time. Now, but it's one thing for that to happen in a movie. It's one thing for that to happen at a sporting event or something like that. It's a whole other thing when that kind of thing's happening in church. It's a whole other thing when that is happening in a place and at a time that God has designated for worship. And that's what's going on here. And and this market that was set up to provide a few conveniences for sure turned out to be incredibly corrupt. So first of all, animals are being sold at exorbitant rates because there's always a price tag on convenience, right? You ever bought Advil at the airport because you had a headache and you didn't travel with any? So you go into the Hudson News and buy some Advil. It's like 10 bucks, right? For two pills. So there's a price for convenience. I understand that. But there's, a, there's also a point where you're just like, oh, come on now. Now you're just ripping me off. And so this, this is actually happening there. But then on top of that, they had inspectors there that would inspect if you brought your own, because the movie theater won't let you, will they? So if you brought your own, then they'll inspect it. And they'll go, oh, you know, I, I see a flaw. There's even historical writings that talk about how priests would say, we're able to detect if your animal will eventually have a flaw. And therefore, we're rejecting the animal that you brought right now. But don't worry, convenience, we got some right here. Like, that's what would happen. And then the other thing is, is there were money changers. You've heard about the money changers that took place there in the courtyard. So uh, you might be thinking, so what's that all about? Money changers, well, we see that at the airport too. That's exactly what's happening there. So you would, you would pay a temple tax annually when you came, and that actually paid for and covered sort of the upkeep there in the temple. But the temple tax was only taken in half shekels, which was not the currency that most people used at that particular time. And so what they would do is go, don't worry, don't worry. If you don't have them, we got them right here. We'll do an exchange for you, but just like they do now, there's going to be a fee attached to your exchange. And you know how it works, right? Convenience again does this. So when we go to Uganda, um, we've learned over the years and been taught over the years. When you go to Uganda, you only bring $100 bills and you get them crisp and clean, like as new as you can. I have literally gone to like three or four different banks here in a day before my Uganda trip trying to get really good shape $100 bills. And you pack them so they stay flat and don't get wrinkled up or anything. Because when you go over there, you'll get a better exchange rate if your money is in better shape. If your money's worn, they won't exchange it at the same amount. And we never exchange money at the airport. 
because the exchange rates at the airport are horrible. So we wait till we get to Uganda. We go all the way into town. We find a bank, an actual bank, and then we go in there and they use the actual government exchange rates. So it's a much, much better rate. So there's a price tag for convenience, but there's a difference when someone's just straight up trying to rip you off. And that's what's actually happening here. That's what's taking place. And then to top it all off, the high priest is getting a cut of this. So this isn't about we'll make money for the temple. This is about we'll make money ourselves individually. That's what's taking place here. People are getting rich off of this church, off of this temple, off of this worship. And every time that Jesus comes to the temple and sees this, and it happens multiple times in the scriptures, every time he comes to the temple and sees this, Jesus Christ is angry. Like angry. I don't mean just like I disapprove. I mean angry. You read these accounts and you see stories of him flipping over the tables of the money changers, the money going all over the place. Can you imagine that? Like imagine at Christmas going into the mall when it's packed and just throwing the cash register off some of those booths right there in the middle of the store because their prices are too high. How would that go over? Guess what he did. Another account talks about how he went in, he saw this take place, and he made a whip. If you've been here for a while, I've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things. Like, it's just, it just amazes me to think about. Jesus looked at all this and was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to need a whip. <laughs> he did. And he, and he makes one. Okay, so think about the time that takes. Think about all the opportunities that he had to go, I don't know, maybe I should do this a little bit different. I could be a little more diplomatic. And, and nope, it's going to be a whip. And he makes a whip and uses it and drives people out of there. Like, that's what Jesus does when he sees this. When he sees this happen, he gets angry. And this surprises a lot of people. It, it even makes some people in Christianity really uncomfortable when we talk about that kind of stuff. Some of you, even as I was saying that, were probably thinking, yeah, but you got to say it was righteous, Jeff. Come on, quick. Don't tell me you didn't sin because we get a little nervous about that. Like, Jesus got angry. That's uncomfortable feels wrong. He was angry. A lot of people think, oh, Christians, we're, anger's not part of, anger's bad, and as Christians, we shouldn't have anything to do with anger. We just love. We love people all the time. Never angry. Love, 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 love. That's all we do. But in reality, you cannot have love without a measure of hate. You know this, right? You can't love people and not hate the things, the sins, the corruption, the oppression that so easily plagues people and trips people up and destroys people. I told you guys the story last week of my friend who's no longer with us anymore. You can't, you can't love him and not hate what took him. So that's, th- th- there's a balance to that. There, hate is part of, there, there's an element of, a measure of hate that's actually necessary to be able to love. And that's why the Bible says this. In Ephesians 4 verse 26, the Bible says this. Be angry and sin not. So just think about what that says. Take the last three, four words out and just look. What is the Bible telling you to do? The Bible's saying, commending to you anger. Be angry. Don't sin, but be angry. There's a type of anger that the Bible actually commends to us and wants us to have. 
This is amazing. It's a very difficult thing for us sometimes to come to terms with because especially here in kind of Western Christianity, we have that sort of Thomas Kincaid, you know, Swedish Jesus in the bathrobe kind of mentality where it's just peaceful and loving all the time. But, but the reality is the Bible's like, hey, look, anger is actually a God-given emotion and it's something that's commended to us to do, but, but to do it in a way that is glorifying to God and not sinful. And there's a difference between the two of those. Um, I'll show you something, actually. Um, those are the guys that are in here that are part of the TAG class, Theology for the Average Guys. Um, I think we just wrapped up uh, the class for this term. I'm sure Jason's probably throwing one together, another one come up pretty soon. Don't miss that. I was actually really impressed. It was super fun to get to do that with those guys. And uh, I got to teach the last three weeks teaching about the attributes of God. Like, who is God? What are his attributes? What is he like? And when you're doing that, the best thing that you can do is not only go to the Bible first and foremost, because this is the complete revelation of God, correct? So we want to go to the Bible, not experiences or feelings, because everybody's got that. Oh, to me, God is like, uh, that's garbage. Let's go to the Bible, right? But, but not only that, let's go first and foremost to the places where God in the Bible describes himself, and says, hey, I'm like this. This is what I'm like. So we started out in one of what is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It's in Exodus chapter 34. And I want you to take a look at this description. This is God describing himself, declaring himself to Moses. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to what? anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, next slide, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now go back to the first part of that if you would, Jesse. Slow to anger. He's slow to anger but in his attributes that he declares to Moses when he's describing himself, one of the attributes God points out that is part of who he is, his character and his makeup is anger. Slow to it, not irrational, not petulant or childlike flying off the handle or, or pouting or any of that kind of stuff. But there's an element of anger. Now, we in our class, we talked about the difference between an essential attribute and a, what, what's referred to as an accidental attribute. An essential attribute is like, he can't be God without this. So, for example, he is holy. And without the holiness of God, it's not the same God anymore. It's an essential attribute of God's character. Anger is not an essential attribute of God's character. It's actually a byproduct. That's, it's an effect. It's, it's part of a cause and effect relationship that's actually based out of God's love. God's love for us results in anger when his people are afflicted. God's love for holiness and goodness results in anger when holiness and goodness are thwarted and corrupted and end up coming out as sin or rebellion or whatever the case may be. So it may not be an essential, if you will, part of the character of God, but it's absolutely part of God's character. He's slow to anger. So anger is absolutely a commended part of Christianity. And in fact, if we who are called to be like, if you will, to manifest God to the world around us, then the Bible actually calls us to exhibit a certain level of anger. Sounds weird, right? Anybody seen that on a bumper sticker? Christians, don't forget to be angry. I know you've seen people driving like that. I'm just saying, did you see it on a sticker? You know what I mean? So then, then why? Well, 
our experiences with, with anger tend to lack the righteousness of God. And that's kind of the problem. That's what makes us uncomfortable with it. We either have experienced expressions of anger ourselves or experienced expressions upon us of anger that lack the goodness and righteousness of God. And that's part of the problem. So, for example, some of us um, have or have experienced short fuses. Like just, just going off. Like people who just quickly to anger, quickly to rage. Proverbs 15 verse 18 says this. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So in Proverbs, it's urging us like, hey, slow. It doesn't say, but he who is never angry quiets contention. Hey, sometimes there's a problem and it might take a little bit of anger, but we're to be slow to anger. We're to be rational and calm as we deal with those things. But someone who has a short fuse saying, hey, don't be that guy. That's not like God and that's not what you're to be like. That's the Bible saying that. Uh, The second thing is that some of us have experienced or have expressed anger that is cruel. Like that's just meant to be mean and hurtful. That's not about like righting an injustice or getting things back to a good level, but that it's it's about enacting anger like retribution. I want to feel better by you hurting because I'm angry at you. That kind of thing. Or anger that maybe doesn't even have a cause that has anything to do with us. It might be affected by something outside of us, but we become or someone else becomes the object of your anger even if they don't deserve it. That's sinful anger. Um, In Exodus 34, in the, the account that we just saw, when it talks about God's anger, did you notice the slow to anger part is enveloped by descriptions of God's mercy and love and graciousness and goodness. It's not cruel. It's not petulant. And he doesn't fly off the handle. And then the last one is this. And this is probably the most common problem um, that we're all guilty of, at least at times, is that we get angry at the wrong things. We, we don't get angry about the things that God gets angry about. We, we get angry at different things. We don't get angry as quickly uh, about the things that offend God and that God gets angry at. And instead, one of the most common, we get really angry about the things that offend us. That's what we do really, really quickly. Like this has been an offense to us. This has upset me. So example, someone pulls out in front of you when you're driving today. You're like, man, honking, you jerk, come on, but get right on their bumper. Why didn't you just wait till I get by? All that kind of stuff. You pull out in front of someone else. Oh, sorry, just show grace, no big deal. You ever notice that? We get mad when they pull out in front of us. When we pull out in front of someone else, we're like, and if, you know, they're, they're giving us, you know, the international sign of, hey, what did you do that for? And you're up there just like, why would you react like that? That's not nice. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. We've all done that. We've all done that. I mean, not the sign of, not the hand thing. Anyway, let's just keep going. Um, We get mad when we are inconvenienced, when we are disrespected, when we are slighted, when we are offended, and when we are hurt and rejected. And it ends up actually being a little bit of a telltale sign of a form of self-worship that we really don't want to call it that. But because we treat it, our anger in that way is very consumeristic. Everyone out there exists to serve me. Everyone out there is to make my life easier, or at the very least, stay out of my way. And then when they get in my way, or when they offend me, or when they make my life harder, our reaction tends to be, how dare you do that to me? You know what that sounds like? Blasphemy. 
How dare you offend me? Who do you think you are to say that to me? I don't deserve that. And, and you're elevating yourself in a sense when you're doing that kind of thing. It's a super uncomfortable thing to think about, but it's the reality. And typically, we don't get nearly as upset about the things that offend God. And this is, listen, not throwing guilt trip here whatsoever. I'm not. If God convicts, that's between you and God. I'm just talking facts. It's just, just facts. And, and, and I'll tell you one of the reasons that I know this to be true. If we get as angry about the things that God doesn't like as that, if we really did, if we were quick to always be, as Christians, concerned with the things that God is concerned with, there would never, ever, ever need to be a program like every child that ministers to foster kids because no foster kids would ever need a place to stay. The church would take care of that. There are plenty enough Christians to cover that throughout the world. That's just true. Like many of the different organizations that exist, exist because the church hasn't fulfilled some of those roles. And that's sad. It's a bummer, but it's true. It's the reality of how the world tends to be. What we need instead is to cultivate a heart like God that rejoices in the things that God rejoices in, that mourns the things that cause God to grieve, and that gets angry at the things that God gets angry about. And that's what's going on in this market right here. And Jesus you know, the, the people of Israel just accepted it. It is what it is. We can't change it. It doesn't really matter. Just, it's just been there for years. But every time Jesus comes in and he sees it, he gets righteously, non-sinfully angry when he sees this happen. And he shuts it down. He drives it out. He fixes the problem every time that he shows up over there. Why such a reaction? I mean, that's, that's huge. Like, you might disagree with the, the candy prices at the movie store, or at the, the movie store, movie theater, when you get up to the, what's that thing, concession store, candy store, whatever. It's one service. Usually, these are the mistakes I make at the 8.30 service, and by the 10.30 service, I've got it all dialed. So, um, so this is like, you, we wouldn't go into the movie theater and start kicking the counters over and throwing the cash registers to the side. We just go, it's lame, we don't like it, it's expensive, but it's the way it is. That's not what Jesus does. He cleans house. He shuts it down. And this is, a, this is not a little bitty corner booth. It's like a huge market. Why such a reaction? Is, it, is money that big of a deal? Because like, there's a lot of things Jesus saw that he didn't agree with and he didn't like. But we don't see him do this kind of a reaction very much. Why this? Is it money? Well, the money does play a part but it's part of a much, much bigger issue. Because I want you to think about this. In the temple, um, there were different layers of access that some people had access to certain areas and other people don't. Let's use the Super Bowl for an example. There's different layers of access. There's the owner's box, and the owner can go anywhere he wants there. And then there's, you know, people like, well, I almost said people like us sitting in the cheap seats. But number one, there are no cheap seats at the Super Bowl. Number two, people like us aren't there. But anyway... There's the average guy sitting in row triple Z all the way up at the top who he gets to go to that seat and he's lucky he gets to go to a bathroom, right? Like that, just different layers of access that exist. And so in the temple, you had the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was to reside. Only one priest, one time a year, got access to that. And then as you continue to work your way outside the temple, there's different areas with different levels of access. Only men can go here. Only Jewish men, women can go here. Like, just different layers. And, and the, the cheap seats, so to speak, 
in the temple, if you are, would be the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the place where if you are outside the people of God, you're, you're a non-Jewish person who is outside the people of God, you could still come to the temple. You could participate in the worship services. You could offer sacrifices. You could ask questions. You could learn. You couldn't go any further than that, but that was the part of the temple that was kind of evangelistic, meaning someone who's outside the family of God could come into that area and learn, pray, grow. And let's think about it in the big picture. The purpose of Israel all along was that they would be a missionary nation. Even some of the laws that were given Israel were so that they would look different. Like some of the stuff that you go, why can't they eat crab? Or why this? Or why this? A lot of that was because he wanted Israel to be, and the word is holy, which means literally separate from everybody else. And so that when people would ask, and this is even attached to Passover, When a kid asks, Dad, why are we doing this? Why are we celebrating this? Why are we doing this stuff? It gives you opportunity to answer those questions and say, you know, because God is a gracious and loving God. And while we were slaves and undeserving and helpless and there was nothing we could do, and God came and and he just, he saved us for no reason other than he's good. And he set us free. And he, and he exact, exacted judgment on wickedness, but he preserved us because of this lamb. And there's this opportunity for testimony. Well, that's the same kind of opportunity that exists in the court of the Gentiles. People that are outside the church, if you will, had a place there in the temple where they could come in and they could say, hey, what is going on? Man, why are they? Man, there's like blood everywhere. Why are all these animals being killed? What's going on? And someone could say, because our God did this. And here's the history and here's what God has done. Now, let me ask you, when they built their market, where do you think they put it? Did they put the market in the Holy of Holies? No. Did they bring the animals into the, maybe not the best seats, but the next level down? Is that where they brought the market and all the noise and all that kind of stuff? No. You want to put it where the most people have the most opportunity to come in and be able to buy the stuff that they need, and that is the court of the Gentiles. So the place where even people outside the family of God should have been able to come in and learn about God and worship becomes a place where the Jewish religious leaders themselves are making their own money, There's not, and they're taking advantage of them. They're making money hand over fist at the expense of the poor people who have traveled all that way to come there. And these are religious leaders whose job was to be mediators between God and man. And instead of building a bridge between God and man, they're building barricades, obstacles. They're making it more difficult. You need to have enough money to be able to worship. You need to have the right animal in order to be able to worship. All of this kind of stuff is taking place in the very missionary aspect, the the missional part of the temple. And when Jesus sees it, He's had it. It's greed, yes. It's ripping people off, yes. But it is preventing people from being reconciled to their God. And that's the whole reason that Israel even exists as a nation. Because God chose them, not because they were the best, not because they were the most amazing country in the world. He tells them that you were the smallest, you were the weakest, you were the fewest. I chose you because I am good. And I'm going to use you as a missionary nation to spread blessing throughout the rest of the world as you give testimony to who I am. That was Israel's job. 
and now they're just making bank off of it. Instead of turning attention to God, they're profiting and making money hand over fist. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sees this and he is angry. Angry. And shuts it down. Which I love thinking about the fact they never stop him from doing that, huh? There's something about the way he carried himself, the authority that he carried himself, the attitude and the way that he dealt with that, that he would go in there, whip or not, and shut it down, and it doesn't seem like anybody stopped him. This is what he did. And at this point, his interactions with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, all of the teaching, whether it seemed like kind teaching or whether it's really calling them out teaching, that stuff's just done, just done. You see the interaction in uh, Luke 20, verses 1 through 8, where they're like, hey, what authority do you have to do this kind of stuff? And he, he's not even really answering their question. He's like, all right, I'll ask you a question. When John the Baptist, the guy that's been pointing to me as the Lamb of God all along, started doing baptisms, baptisms which are pictures of dying and being raised again, when John the Baptist was doing all of that, tell me this, was he baptizing in the name of God or in the name of some man or himself. And so they talk amongst themselves and they're like, man, okay, well, if, if we say it's God, then we're in trouble because we've been rejecting him and talking about him all this time. But if we say it's man, we're going to be in trouble because a lot of people really seem to like Jesus at this moment. So we don't know what to do. So I don't know. Just say, I don't know. So there you go. I don't know. And Jesus is like, yeah, oh, well. And that's it. Quite a story, huh? Okay. What do we do with this? That's the history of the story. That's what's taking place in that moment. So what does that mean to us? How does that apply to us in this particular moment? Or if I can, and we may have visitors here. If you're visiting, man, I'm, we love having you guys here. Thank you for coming. Um, if you have questions about anything, if we can help you um, in any way whatsoever, we really do want to serve you. Please let me know. At this particular moment, though, I'm not so much talking to you. <laughs> I'm talking to Heritage, this church. Christians in general, heritage specifically, okay? What do we do? Like, what do we take away from that? Well, the answer is, begins with the question, what does the gospel teach us about this? And so let's think about it. Why is Jesus there in the first place? Why did Jesus even come to Jerusalem in the first place? Why is he even walking into that place at all to begin with? The answer is, Jesus is coming to lay his life down that many, many people would be saved. He's not coming to build his personal following. Remember, that's the frustration his followers have. They're like, we're going to Jerusalem and the kingdom's coming and we're going to set it all up now, right? We're going to be in charge. This is going to be awesome. And he won't do that, which frustrates some of his followers because he's coming to Jerusalem to lay his life down. And in just a couple of nights... Jesus and his disciples are going to get together in this upper room and they're going to have a meal together. And at a certain point, Jesus is going to take his robe off and he's going to assume not just the posture, but even the look, the decor, the, the clothing of a servant. And he's going to bow down between, before each of his followers and he's going to, right before their feet, take a basin of water and begin washing the feet of each of his disciples. And you have to understand that was like the lowest servant in the place would do that job. Like that's the lowest job you can get, right? And he's going to go around to them. And they're really uncomfortable at first, which 
you would imagine would be the case. Imagine if I just walked down right now and started washing some of your feet. That'd be a little weird to you. And they're like, what are you doing? You can't do this, Lord. No, I'll wash your feet. And Jesus is like, no, 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 listen. You need to be cleansed. And he goes through and he washes each of their feet. And then the Bible tells us in John chapter 13, look at this in verse 12. Do we have this slide? I sent it to him really late. Did you guys get this? John chapter 13, verse 12 says, no, didn't get it. I'll just read it to you. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly. And when they do that, those two words in a row, that's an emphasis like, like listen, listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's some powerful stuff right there. He says, listen, why did I come? I came to serve you. I came to bow down. I set my royalty and my position and my privilege aside, and I came to serve you. And you've been calling me teacher, and you've been calling me Lord, and you're right. I'm both of those things. But if that's what I am, if I'm the teacher that you learn from, and if I'm the Lord that you serve, then this is what you're to do because I've given you an example. This is what I'm calling you to do, follower of Jesus. You're not greater than the master. You follow the master. And this is the example that I have set, that you serve one another, that you bow down and serve. You consider others better than yourself. You, you look for the needs of the other person and you seek to meet those things. You're not, you're not looking at relationships as a means to an end for yourself so that you can build your own kingdom but that you're willing to set your kingdom aside, bow, and serve the others around you. And then he says, if you know these things, and we know these things, church, we know these things. So if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Other translations, happy are you if you do them. Like you even think about the pursuits of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in having that market in the first place. Build their own kingdom, get more money and more money and more money because that's what will make us happy is more stuff, more comfort, more things, more all, that's what we need. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. Happy are you if you do these things. Happy are you. So heritage, what does that mean to us? First of all, the gospel tells us we have a king, lord, teacher, master who happily bowed before us, happily set his place aside, happily took his own robe off and went to the cross on our behalf, happily took on the wrath of God, the righteous anger towards our sin given to Jesus Christ on the cross in our place on Passover. And he did that happily because he desired to serve us in that way. He said all along to his disciples, I have not come to be served, I came to serve, to give my life as a ransom for others. And we have a great, powerful, awesome, 
loving God who is slow to anger, which we should all be thankful for because we could probably kick it up pretty quick if he wasn't, and who loves us and has laid his life aside for us. When he could have just walked right into the temple on that day, revealed his glory to everyone, and we would have all been in trouble. He said, no, I came to serve you. And that Lord and that teacher then says to us, in turn, this is what I'm calling my followers to do. I have given you an example that you may lay your life down for others. And I honestly believe this. One of the biggest issues going on in the Christian church today, at least in my experiences and most of the pastors I interact with, it's cons- this consumeristic attitude that we, we take church and turning into something that's all about us and remove the servant aspect from it altogether and it becomes this, almost this club or this place where like, I go to this church to meet my needs and then doesn't have an, a, a, a mentality towards reaching anyone else. And Heritage, if we as a church want to be more and more and more like Jesus, which is what he calls us to do, then we got to push on that stuff more and more and more. we gotta, we got to long to serve one another in the same way that Jesus served his disciples in that moment. And we got to long to serve those that are outside. What does that look like? That, that is a really good question to spend some time on. How can I serve other people in the church and outside of the church in such a way that would reflect the way Jesus Christ has served me? And that'll affect the way you even go to church. That might affect what parking space you choose when you come in. Because maybe somebody new is going to come in and they don't realize it's one service and really, really, by the way, I'm not throwing guilt. I'm just giving ideas. But, and I mean that sincerely. But that might affect, like, you know what, maybe I want to, Maybe I want to park in the back and walk a little further and save a spot for someone who's new that's coming because that might be a real good way to serve somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus. And we wouldn't want someone who doesn't even have Jesus yet to come and feel like, well, I can't go there. I can't even get a parking space. So maybe I'll park over here. Or it might be, I don't want to choose the best seat, which I got to admit, in this church, I don't even know what that is because most of you want nothing to do with the front row. And in a concert, we'd want the front row. So I I don't know what the best seat is. Whatever you think the best seat is, maybe you don't automatically choose that one, whatever, whatever that might be. And instead of like being quick to anger when someone offends us, maybe instead we would be quick to humble ourselves and go, how can I serve the other person that's here? How can I put my own comfort aside for someone else? How can I put my own needs aside for someone else? Church, that's, that's what makes the church look glorious to the rest of the world who doesn't understand that kind of mentality. And that gives them the opportunity to come in here and say, why are you guys being so nice? Why is this kind of going down like this? Why are you guys being so accommodating? Why is, why is this happening? I don't, I don't understand. And then we get to go, because we have this Savior who, though we didn't deserve it, when we were running from him, he ran for us. And it's awesome uh, opportunity for testimony and, and to help even in a service someone's heart to be in a place where they can receive the word of God and understand the grace of God because they're hearing it with their ears, but they've seen it among the people in the room. And then on top of that, if you, if you want a somewhat self-serving reason to do it and not in a bad way because this is one Jesus gives us, hey, this is where joy is. This is where happiness is. This is where lasting real joy and happiness actually exists. 
We actually had this video made that we were going to use and put out through like social media and all this kind of stuff. We saved it till today because of what we're actually doing today. So, that, so uh, you don't need to keep hearing some of this kind of stuff from me. There's some people from within the church that can share some of the testimony about what it's like to serve here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. So can we roll this video real quick and let, let's let some of you talk to each other here. There are those moments where you go to church and you're in the sanctuary and you're worshiping with everybody and your voice is engaged and your heart is engaged and your hands are engaged and like you feel like your whole self worshiping God. I feel like there's a big similarity to come and serve God's people and that's just such a beautiful thing and such a precious gift to be able to just give yourself fully to worshiping God. I think the joy in serving and here at Heritage is when you serve somebody, you see the encouragement and the joy in them. To do something out of compulsion or you have to do it, then that, that doesn't help much. But I think serving from your own heart is the best motivation. I'm using my hands to hug. You know, I'm using my, my voice to, to encourage and my ears to listen. Think of Luke 4, where Jesus came in and healed uh, Simon's mother-in-law. And what did she do as soon as he healed her? She got up and served. And when they serve you, then that, yeah, you want to serve back. Serving, this kind of builds more serving. In my mind, I'm like, I'm going to go bless people. But really, I think that I am, and I hope that I am, but I also think that I get blessed. It's super cool to be the first person to tell a kid a story that you're so familiar with yourself and seeing how excited they are about that. You sort of forget and take for granted how amazing some of these stories are. A sweet young mother came in and she's like, can you hold my baby for a minute? And I was like, oh yeah, totally. So I was holding her baby and we just started talking and she was so sweet. I was there to serve her, but she kind of just like started asking me questions and she prayed for me and just blessed me with her sweetheart and she left and I thought, I feel really blessed and really encouraged. I think that that is one of the main things that I love. It's the body of Christ mutually encouraging each other. I come to serve and she comes to serve. There is a lot of hesitation, but once you just take that jump, everyone's so sweet. It's just getting plugged in and as soon as you are, you start building those connections. If you feel like you're good at something or you have some gifts, the body of Christ needs you. for those guys being willing to share some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, thank you guys so much for doing that. All right. So here's what we're doing today. We at Heritage have created a market. Now, before you freak out, (laughs) here's what we've done. We've asked every service opportunity within Heritage, as well as many of the service opportunities that Heritage Christian Fellowship is a part of outside the walls, to create a booth in the back, back there. Now, some of you guys right now are freaking out like, wait, 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 there's going to be a football game. Don't worry, guys, you might want to go by the men's ministry booth and they'll probably take care of that for you. But um, back there, we've got, like I said, they once called us the Costco church. So we have food at each of the different booths, just like Costco. As you cruise around, you can get some of this. But here's the idea. Back there, we go, if you have a kids, one of you go get the kids and come back out and check out opportunities to serve. 
even if you're not at a place where you're physically able to do some of that stuff, you can at least see what's going on and maybe there's other ways of support. It's a great opportunity for fellowship with one another. We've got Mercy's Gate is here. The Pregnancy Center is here. We even have the ladies from the hospital, the pink jackets that you come in and ask what room number they're in. They're here with a booth. There's opportunities and needs all over the valley, veterans ministry, children's ministry, all over the place, opportunities for you to be able to do the very kind of thing and find the kind of joy that Jesus was telling you is available to all of you. And the kids have a bounce house. So there's that. Listen, take a few minutes. Go back there, meet some new people, see what's going on there. And actually, um, they've all been charged with kind of building their own booth. And I actually have to go through and judge the booths. Like I have to pick one that gets some sort of, I don't even remember what the prize was, dinner or something. They were all like, what's the criteria? And I was like, it's whatever I like. So I don't know. It's going to be tough to beat the football game, but we'll see. We'll see. But I want to encourage you guys, listen, if you're not serving, find a place to serve. If you're like, oh man, but my life's so busy, I don't know if I can pull that off. I'm telling you right now, find a way to lay parts of your life down if that's what you have to do in order to serve others both within the church and outside the church. That's what heritage, that's what the church, that's what followers of Jesus are to be about. Amen, church? Okay, will you stand with me and let's pray and then I'm gonna cut you guys loose. Also, they are giving out some information sheets that has stuff on there that'll tell you how you can connect if you can't hang out. But please, these gals, uh, these people have put in a lot of work on some of this kind of stuff too. Go see them. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you for this opportunity to see that you are such a great servant to us. You've been so good to us and you have served us so well. Father, will you lead us to the places where we can exercise the gifts that you've given us and serve others in such a way that brings glory to you and brings attention to you in this world around us. May you bless these people as they go about their day. I pray that they would just carry Jesus and the gospel with them. And we thank you for our time with you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.